0: Good morning and welcome to this time of worship here together. Certainly glad for the presence of each one. Little, uh, little scanter, um, crowd than what we have some Sunday mornings. But we're glad you're here. And, uh, I might just add that, uh, do check which group you're in and show up if you can. I think, uh, I think we're going to need all the help we can get tonight at our nursing home. So, um, so uh, turn out if it all works for you. Turn with me to Matthew 5 for a uh, a reading here this morning to start us off. Um, maybe a question I would have here right away for you to consider is, how close to perfection do you feel that anything upon this very imperfect world can we experience? Alright, in other words, as you think about your life, your, um, your experience in life, the things you've owned, the things you've encountered, um, the things you enjoy, uh, is there anything in this world that we could actually call perfect? It, like, it is absolutely perfect. N- free of any flaw. I don't know. As I considered that, I, I I thought, you know, I think I would have a really difficult time coming up with anything that you could say is completely perfect. Because we live in an imperfect world, right? So is there anything that can can reach a level of perfection that we could say 100%, you know, not 99.9? You know, even... You know, Justin and I in the seed business um, you you would think that in any given bag of seed that it would be one hundred percent seed, but there 's always that little tag that says ninety nine point whatever i mean or even less than that, some small grains it gets pretty dirty sometimes, and they 're willing to let twenty i don 't know a large percentage be you know something other than seed so uh, it, it's a it 's a reminder that as much as we want to say that's 100% pure seed in there, it's, it's not. And, and we're, and we have to say that, you know, because we live in an imperfect world. Now with that as a backdrop, let's read, uh, verses 43 to 48 here in Matthew 5. Ye have heard that it's been said, thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now, you know exactly the verse I'm going to drill in on. That's that last verse. So if we live in this imperfect world and we're having a difficult time um, deciding if there's anything perfect here, which one of you are ready to raise your hands here this morning and say, I'm a perfect Christian. Perfect. I'm perfectly satisfied with everything about my Christian life. I mean, I'm right where I wish to be. Perfect. And beyond that, not only perfect, but perfect and the measuring stick is our Father, which is in heaven. Anybody ready to sign up for that? I'm as perfect as my Father, which is in heaven. Now, I don't know if you've ever stopped and thought about that verse much. Uh, probably many of us have committed uh, portions of this Sermon on the Mount, maybe all of it, to memory. And I think we read through this and there's so much in the Sermon on the Mount to talk about other than this verse, we kind of just slide through it. And we don't even give much thought what this is actually saying. Well, that's a tall order. And I didn't see any hands go up, so how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to interpret this? The perfectness that we're called to and the measuring stick is, is God. There's another Verse in the in the New Testament that um, Paul, when he's wrapping up his writings to the to the Corinthian church there in Second Corinthians, he goes, "Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace shall be with you." And the irony there is he's telling the Corinthian church, w- w- which was rife with issues to the point that it's the two largest epistles that Paul wrote to any church, and there's there would be reason to believe he wrote actually a third one, and he went to visit these people, and and there was bedlam in this church, and he goes, be perfect. Like, that doesn't even make sense. I mean, let's try that on maybe the Thessalonians, but Corinthians? And yet that's what he calls them to. So what is perfection? Well, if you just look it up in the dictionary... It it is defined like this. Having all the required or desirable elements, qualities, or characteristics as good as it is possible to be. That is perfect. So, with all this in mind, obviously, God would not call us, or Jesus would not call us here on the Sermon on the Mount to do something that's absolutely impossible. Now, there's a lot of people that believe that. That is why the Sermon on the Mount has been conveniently relegated in the minds of many to some future time when we can attain this perfection. But in the meantime, here on this earth, you know, it's it's these are nice things to think about. We should, um, you know, I mean, when we can, we should, but no. I mean, the Sermon on the Mount, there's just no way that we can attain that, and so... Um, we're just, it has to mean something. It has to mean for a future, be for a future time. Uh, we're just going to put it in that in that camp. We, on the other hand, believe that the Sermon on the Mount is to be lived out in some way. It's supposed to find shoe leather in our in our lives. And if we believe that, then this verse has to mean something. It has to. The first thing we're going to do here for a little exercise this morning is we're going to find some people in the Bible. That the that the record of these people is that they were perfect. That's that's the record. Turn with me to generation, generation, Genesis, Genesis six, and you know who this is going to be, um, the first man in the Bible. That the commentary on this man was that he was perfect. Okay, starting at verse five, and God saw that the wickedness of men. Man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And I repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generation, and Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth was corrupt, also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all the flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. We're going to stop reading there. But you, you caught it. He was a just and a perfect man. From the scant information that we have here about Noah, I'm going to conclude that his perfection was based on a couple things here. He, he obviously had an appreciation for righteousness. It said he was a just man. He, he walked justly in his generation. And his generation was extremely vile, um, it seems like there isn't enough adjectives and words that can be used here to describe the vileness of this generation. And then, not only that, um, in verse fourteen we didn't re- we didn't read on, but God gives Noah some instructions, and you know what they were? He was supposed to build this big ark, and he said, you know, just go do it. You know, let's let's figure this out. Here's the here's the height and the breadth and the length, and I can't help but in my mind that Noah when he heard that. You know, it doesn't hit us because they use this cubits thing and stuff. But those of you that have been down to Noah's Ark in Yonderville, you know what the size of that thing. And I'll just imagine doing that all by, well, I don't know. I don't know what tools he had at his disposal, but I don't think he had the tools to use that we did. I don't think, although that is maybe a bit debatable, what he had to work with. But it took him a while to get it done. So he couldn't have maybe had um, all the technology that we have today. And I can't help but think that Noah didn't say to himself, S- "Say what? Could you repeat those measurements again for me? I-, I need to write them down just to make sure that I got this right." And all the time he's thinking, "You got to be kidding me!" You know, I, I, I don't know, but it seems to me that that's possible. Don't have it that he said that, but uh, it's possible. But he willingly obeyed God in this radical, almost unattainable. Um, uh, Command, uh, instruction that God given. It was very daunting. If we, if we flip back to Hebrews then on the faith chapter, and I'm just going to read you a verse there where it gives some commentary on Noah. He says, He was warned of God of things not seen as yet. He moved with fear. He prepared an ark to the saving of his house by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Did you catch that? That this action of his of preparing the ark Actually, to some degree, ended up being part of the condemnation of the world. It was a simple act of obedience, and as people walked past Noah's house every day and saw that man building that goofy boat in there, so huge, so ridiculous, and and Noah, it 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 says that he even took the time sometimes to even preach to him a bit. He was a preacher of righteousness, but all of these things, when I mean, you when you put it together. I believe this is what made Noah a perfect man in his generation. Now, if you, if you turn to Genesis 9, which, again, you can flip back there if you want to. I'm not going to read much out of there. But we have the account that after the flood and after things are kind of getting settled down on the earth, it's said that Noah become a, becomes a husbandman, and he grows these grapes, and he ferments them, and he gets drunk on them. And we have this this uh, unfortunate um, happening of, of his one son, um, seeing Noah there naked in his tent, and and so on, and it it ended up causing a um, a breach in in mankind that is with us yet today, um, and 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 so on. And that's not exactly where I'm going to go. But the point I want to make is that even Noah, in his perfectness, if you will, doesn't sound like a very perfect scenario there in Genesis nine. I mean, we got a drunk man. Kind of in an unbecoming way in his tent, right? And um, and then his sons kind of do some untoward things. Not a picture of perfection. But does that does that keep Noah from ending up in the faith chapter? Is that what we read about Noah in the faith chapter about his drunken state there and so on? It's not. Noah goes down in history. We it's part of the it's part of the um, of the narrative. It's part of Noah's life. The Bible's always just in giving the story as it stands, but that 's not what we think about when we think about Noah, is it? We do think of a perfect man, don 't we all right let 's turn now to, to Genesis seventeen, a few chapters back, to another man that um, that while it, uh, it doesn 't say he was perfect, he was certainly called to be perfect. And I'm just going to read the first verse here in Genesis 17. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, so he was 99, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, from what we know of Abraham, um, we, we certainly wouldn't have a hard time... Um, Accepting the fact that Noah had walked in in some perfection up to this time, and certainly we can see perfection in in uh, Abraham after this time. Um, but again, as much as as much as when we think of Abraham, we think of the highlights, the good highlights in in his life. But let's not forget, and and we don't, and again the Bible is fair that. This is also the man that had lied a couple times about who his wife was. He had picked up Hagar down in, in Egypt to be his uh, concubine. And he had kind of tried to help God out here a little later with, um, with making him his, making this slave lady his wife and, and conceiving this child, Ishmael, which by the way, that, that war we have going over there in, in Hamas and in Israel, it's because of this. It's because of this perfect man and him messing up so badly that we got this generational issue between the, the Arabs and the Jews. It's, it's really unbelievable when you think about it. But anyway, um, this is the man we're working with. But that's not the things we remember, is it? The things we remember about uh, about Abraham is the fact that he willingly left his home country he selflessly allowed Lot to take the watered plains. Not only that, but when Lot got all messed up and he gets taken captive uh, by these warring kings, well, who's the man that, that ends up getting Lot? Well, it's Abraham and his, and his servants, right? He prays for Lot whenever a fire and brimstone is about to fall on Sodom and Gomorrah. And later on, he willingly takes that child that he had, he had um, longed for and looked forward to for so many years, and God says, "Well, I'll no, just take him up the mountain and sacrifice him," and um, and he does that. He he did it. He did it without even questioning God. Now, I'm not suggesting here. I hope you're not thinking I'm suggesting that this whole thing of perfection is when the good outweighs the bad. That's not what I hope I'm portraying here. I'm simply saying, when you look at people that the Bible calls perfect, we certainly see things that. Yeah, are pretty amazing that these people did because of their because of their righteousness and commitment to God. But there's reality on the other side that they certainly were far from perfect as we think of perfect. I'm going to refer to the next one, and this this is a out of First Kings eleven four, and this is directed uh, or a, a commentary about Solomon, and here's how it reads. And it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart from other after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. Alright? Now if you remember with me, when when David was being sought after by God, or he had been determined that he was going to be the king by God, and God's telling uh Samuel that, you know what, I'm I'm Saul's no longer be the king, it's gonna be, it's gonna be David. The thing that, that God said was different about Saul and David, he said, I want a man that is after my own heart. Alright? So David was a man after God's own heart. Solomon was a man that's heart was not perfect after his God, like David's was. And I don't need to even tell you of the grievances of David, do I? Again, very much like the last two men, we tend to remember David um, because of his wonderful, um, the wonderful things, the David and Goliath story. You know, uh, the fact that he had opportunity to kill Saul a couple, three times and chose not to. Um, these different things that um, we, we remember him for all the wars that he fought and, and different things like that. But we also remember him because of his sin, don't we? I mean, that's what makes David David. Um, and then after that, his, his the 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 mess that his family became, the Absalom, and um, what was his other son there? Can't think of it. It starts with an A. But anyways, those two boys that uh, couldn't get along and and fought for the uh, fought for the kingship, etc. This is David, and yet he's called a man that had a perfect heart toward God. I also find it interesting that in the, uh, in the commentary that is given on King Asa, when Asa had just hired some military help from another heathen king to help him fight his war, this deplete, this displeased God greatly. And so the, the prophet came and confronted Asa about this and he said, look, he said, you fought some wars before and, and God helped you and now in your latter years you're forgetting that? And you're hiring this heathen king to help you? Don't you remember how God helped you? He said God's not happy about this. And what does Asa do? Asa gets angry at the prophet, and he throws him in prison, and um, and he never does repent of his uh, of his sin. But in that conversation the prophet has with Asa that day, he said, "The eyes of the Lord run to and fro upon the whole earth, to show Himself strong." In the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Herein you have done foolishly, therefore from henceforth you will have wars. I think there's a little clue here in, in these stories here that we're, we're, we just talked about here with um, Solomon and Asa. Notice how it said that their hearts weren't perfect. Their hearts weren't perfect. And in the case of David, it says their his heart was perfect. And maybe there's a um, maybe there's a little clue here. David. It certainly cannot be denied that the man had a heart that was ready to hear even extremely difficult things. Um, unlike Saul, his predecessor, when Nathan came to to um, David and gave his little parable about the 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 man with the sheep and etc., and David gets all riled up and he said, "That guy should die." And Nathan turns around and he says, you're the man. And David, he did not try to wiggle out of it. He said, that's exactly right. It's exactly who I am. And he wrote Psalms about this. And the man repented in sackcloth and ashes. And what should have been the death sentence was he, he, he was, God in his mercy did not give David that sentence because I believe of his heart. Of, uh, that was, was melded and molded and truly repentant. And, uh, I leave that in the hands of God. I won't comment more on that. But surely, um, surely David knew what he had coming. Two more I'd just like to mention here quickly. And the fir- and the next one is, uh, the, uh, righteous man Job. Job 1 1. Um very familiar verse, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. Now, I don't think we have to um, uh, make much more commentary of that. When a man fears God and he hates evil, this man is a perfect man. <clears throat> now, there's no doubt that as as Job went through that valley that he went through where everything's taken away from him. His friends are accusing him wrongly. He's sitting there scraping his boils and he's just had it with life. Uh, He doesn't curse God as his wife admonishes him to. He does have some questions for God. He's like, I don't understand it. It doesn't seem right to me. You know, why does a righteous man have to go through this? But when we get to the very end of the book and God talks to Job and he tells Job, he said, you know, you don't have it right here. He said... Um, you know, explain some of these things to me. And Job suddenly realizes who he is in front of God, and he says, that's it. I'm just going to lay my hand on my mouth. I'm going to shut up. I don't know what I'm talking about. And the last one I want to refer to is in the New Testament. And this man here was not perfect, but he was told what he could do to be perfect. And that's the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. When the rich young ruler, and you know that story, he comes and he says, I've done this, 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 and this, and I've done it for my youth. And Jesus doesn't dispute that. I really believe the man was telling the truth. And the man, and Jesus says, there's one thing you lack. He said, you go sell what you have and you give them to the poor. And Jesus says, you will be perfect. If you do that, you will be perfect. Now, think about that. Do you suppose the only thing standing between that rich young ruler and perfection was that single thing? Well, that's what Jesus said, right? Well, surely in the strictest sense of the word, you'd have to say no. I mean, this wasn't going to make this man impossible for him to sin in the future or somehow um, uh, commit some grievance or have a bad attitude towards somebody. No, indeed. But at that moment, the thing that stood between him and perfection was those goods that had his heart. And Jesus said, "You got to get rid of those things because that has your heart, and that's 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 your problem right now in life. Is this um, these riches that you have? All right. So when we when we look at the amalgamation of these men that we've looked at that were perfect, you know, these men were radical people. These were men that loved the Lord and they hated evil." <coughs> These were men that were men of real character. They readily accepted God's leading without questions. Maybe Job was the anomaly to that. He had a few questions, but he certainly didn't curse God. And they had a good grasp of who God was and who they were in that proportion. All right. So now let's further think about this, this thing of spiritual perfection. Um, further to, uh, delve into what the Bible has to say about this. The first thing I want us to understand is what this word perfection means in the Bible. So interesting to me that in the, the characters we just looked at, Job, David, Abraham, Noah, when you look at that word perfect in the Hebrew, it does indeed mean that this person was whole. He was without blemish. He was complete. It kind of means perfect the way we think of perfect, without any, any blemish. But if you go into the New Testament and you take the word perfect, not every time the word perfect is used does it come from the same Greek word. But every Greek word that I looked up, and I'm not sure if I did an exhaustive word study on this, but I did at least three different um, words that the word perfect comes from. Each one of these carries the idea of being repaired or mended or filled further or restored. Okay, so... Now, when we think of it that way, we suddenly can grasp the concept and say, well, sure. Um, that's, that should and does, I think, describe all of us. Um, we're in some state of restoration uh, in our Christian life. We are being repaired. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but it's something like taking an old rusty whatever... Tractor out of the weeds somewhere, and just stripping her down, and 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 rebuilding it from the ground up, and making that thing something attractive and useful. Even though it was a worn, tired piece of junk at some point, it's now something quite quite opposite. That's not quite the same as God, because when God changes us, it says we become a new creature. Right? We're something completely new. So I'm not sure if restoration is quite the right idea, but. Um, but it has some, certainly has some, um, some things that are are similar in it. Now, there's two things we have to get straight in our minds if before we can understand what it means to be a perfect cr- Christian. The first thing I'd like to to talk about for a minute is this theological term that we call justification. All right. So when we have when we are justified. We receive something from God. We are justified in the sight of God when we choose to follow him. So when I'm justified, um, we, we make a decision to follow God. We move from Satan's side to God's side. We move from darkness into light. We move from bondage to freedom. We confess our sins to God. We claim Jesus' blood for our atonement. And when, we, when that happens, God justifies us. And there's probably no clearer verses than Romans three twenty four to 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the rege- redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Get that. Sins that are past. Through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. So those verses, to just put it in simple words, that we're declared righteous or perfect because of our acceptance of Jesus as a sacrifice for us. No matter how imperfect we've been in the past, when God chooses to declare us righteous, that's exactly what's happened. And it says he does this because he is a God of forbearance. He's a God that's good and gracious. And it is not for us to uh, dwell on our past imperfections. Rather, it is to accept the fact that God does justify us because of this propitiation or this atoning sacrifice through Jesus. And I think in some ways it's somewhat of an insult almost To God, whenever we can't get past the past, all right, so we're constantly being pulled back into this, well, the past, you know, I was this bad person in the past, I did these bad things, well, when God says it's over, it's over, and when God justifies us, he justifies us, no matter how bad the past is, in one place it says that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, and we understand how far that is. Now, the, the devil's job, when a person is justified, is to stand and accuse him. And, in fact, that's one of the names that the Bible gives the devil. He's the accuser of the brethren. He stands and he's constantly bombarding the Christian. But you aren't perfect. You never were perfect. You never will be perfect. You Look at, look at your past. Really, can God forgive somebody like you? But if God says it, that's the way it is. Romans 5.1, Therefore, being justified by faith... What's the result of that? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. <clears throat> now, I want to just say this. This is the part of, of justification is a runaway train in many, many minds of many Christians. And it's probably something that we even shy away from talking too much about because we as Anabaptist Mennonite people that have a long tradition of believing that yes, we're justified, but then there's the sanctification process, which we're going to get into here real quickly. We tend to, we tend to, um, enlarge or exposit or talk about that sanctification process much more than we do the justification process. And because we do that, sometimes we are dubbed as works Christians. You know, we we believe we have to work, you know, to to earn our salvation or to be Christians or whatever. And it's and it gets all muddled up. And so the easy way out is to say, "Well, God justified me. I stand justified before God." And so thus all sins Past, present, and future are justified, it doesn't really matter what I do, and so thus I can do anything. And and to try to do anything different than that is 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 actually insulting God. And, and and when you take that to the end, you end up with a person that was at my kitchen table about twenty years ago, and he looks like anything but a Christian to me. I mean he's loaded with gold rings and necklaces and jewelry and whatever, and he sat there and he told me in this many words that You know, these things meant a lot to him one time. These were, I mean, he was into jewelry. In fact, he still is. But the difference is, he's now saved. And so the jewelry just, it's different than it used to be. And I'm there like, really? Like, how do you process all this? I mean, if that doesn't mean anything to you, then take it off. Take it off, please, for me. How am I supposed to know? If you don't tell me that, how would I ever know? See, that's the difference. He, he was, he was enlarging on the justification, which I'm there too, but the sanctification part was the part he was missing, right? And so that's what we're gonna run into right now. The point I wanna make is, let's not lay aside or forget about the justification in our zeal for sanctification. Because both are important, right? And so in the, in the eyes of God, when a vile sinner becomes a Christian, I mean, one second he is vile before God, and the next sexu- se- second he is perfect before God. And the thing that happened is, is that God atoned for that man's sins through the blood of Jesus, and there's nothing he could have done beyond that for that to happen. Now let's go into this, this second method of pure, or perfection that I'm going to call it, and that is this, this business of sanctification. So once a person is justified, then God begins the process of sanctification, and that process will last as long as you live. You will never reach a place where you can say, I am 100% sanctified now, and there's just nothing more that I could possibly um, improve upon in my Christian walk or my spiritual uh, vitality that, um, that would make me a more perfect person, okay? And this is where the battle lies for many of us as Christians, and this is also where the discouragement, the defeat, and the denial lie as well. But this sanctification is a process where God touches me as a person through many means. Almost always the Holy Spirit is involved. Maybe I should even say always. But it happens when we read the Word of God. We read the Word of God. It might be happening here as you're listening to the sermon. I don't know. But it it can has happened to me already when I listen to people preach. It might happen when you're preparing your Sunday school lesson. It might happen in some other life experience that you have. But you are brought face to face with something that needs further perfection in your life. Up to that point, it has not been revealed to you. But now it is. And you have to do something about that. So now that's where we come into this. How am I going to respond to what I just now have been made aware of? Can I appropriately begin to work on that area that needs sanctified? Usually this is not an overnight process that involves a period of wrestling and probably even multiple failures. And that's why the Hebrew writer talks about sin as something that easily besets us. That's what it is. It easily besets us. Well, there's many verses that we could look at that would, that would support this idea of a process of sanctification. Probably the, the clearest one is in 2 Corinthians 7.1, where it says it like this, Having therefore these promises dearly beloved, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Now, isn't that interesting language? God is the one that does that, right? Well, we have a part in this. Let us cleanse ourselves, all right, from this filthiness. And then it says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So when I involve myself in this sanctification and I'm there cleansing myself from this filthiness... I am perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It is it, I have some responsibility in this, and there's other verses we could we could look at. For the sake of time, I'm not going to to, to go into that. But um, I point you to this one as one that clearly says that we have a, a part to play in this process of sanctification. So, I'd like to spend just the remainder remaining minutes on giving you a few points on how. I believe you and I can be sanctified and brought into a constant state of perfection before God. So um, I, here's what I believe, and if you, dis- you want to dispute this, this is fine. I believe that what, when a person is converted and he's justified, that God brings to his attention what he needs to know for the next day that's not too overwhelming and is within this person's And I hesitate to say power, but I'm going to say power through God's help to overcome this whatever it is. And I think God reveals these things to us at the right times and in the right proportion that we can, it's not daunting, it's not overwhelming. And we can can overcome these things with the power that Jesus gives to us. That's why the verse is there that says, there's no temptation that comes to you that's more than you can bear because there's always going to be that way of escape. And so as long as we understand that, that this trial, this temptation, whatever we have, it isn't more than we can bear, and we're always looking for that way of escape, we can always be in that center of perfection at that point, even though five years from now, you might look back to where you were five years before and say, you know, I was really imperfect in this place. Well, you know about that now. Let's not worry about what it was five years ago. Let's just worry about getting that right now that we understand that. All right, so here's some points. How can I be sanctified and brought into perfection? Number one, am I really truly examining my heart? Honestly, do I wish to attain holiness, more perfect holiness? Is that my desire? The psalmist says in Psalm 84, my soul longeth, yea, even fainteth for the court of the Lord my heart and my flesh cries out for the living God. Is that you and I this morning can we be described as people that are crying out for the living God? The Hebrew writer says that when you hear your vo- when you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart, but listen to it today. So when God talks to you today about something that you need more perfection in, don't push that off. Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Paul tells the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Well, that's why we have twice yearly examination service, right? And hopefully we're doing that more than twice a year. That we truly, with an honest and good heart, like, like Jesus talks about in the parable of the soils, that we're looking and we're we're wanting that heart to produce a hundredfold, right? Or whatever it's capable of at that point. Is this my desire to reach a standard of perfection tomorrow that I don't have today? Am I always striving in my Christian life? Number two, am I opening myself to the spotlight of God in my life? Am I yielding myself to that? We say, well, what do you mean by that? Is it like spotlight? Does that show up in the New Testament? Well, no, it doesn't. But there's some verses that I think would, um, would, would maybe define what I'm trying to say here. So what are some spotlights that God uses or methods that God uses to nudge me, you and me, toward more perfection in the sanctifying process? I think there's three primary ways. Number one, the exposure to God's word. And and that's why we stress. Every day, pick up God's word and read it. You need that. That's part of sanctification. And if you're like me sometimes and, and life happens and you didn't get that done... That's one good thing of technology, one good thing. You can get a Bible app and you can listen to it. You can do that, but somehow get that, get that word of God incorporated into your life. Psalm 19 says the law of the Lord is perfect, right? Perfect. And that perfect law, it says, converts the soul. And furthermore, it makes wise the simple. Who doesn't want to sign up for this, right? what happens in the, in the perfect law of, of uh, God. James calls this looking into the perfect law of liberty. And he says when a person does that, and he continues, he, he sees it and he reads it, and he says, you know what, I'm going to do that. It says this guy is not a forgetful hearer, but he is a doer of the work, and this man shall be blessed in his deed. Right? So you read God's word in the morning and you say, you know what, I'm going to do that. Whatever you do that day is going to be blessed because you have determined that this is what you're going to do. In Ephesians 5, talking about the church, Paul says this. He says that he or God or Jesus might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Now I know that's talking about a corporate church here, but we are made up of individuals. And as each of us sanctify ourselves through the washing of water, we become more perfect. The second point I'd like to make is the chastisement of God. This is another way that God deals with us. This is another spotlight, if you will. He he chastens us. And you know the, uh, the familiar verses in Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. And he furthermore goes on to say, now this is not pleasant. No chastening for the present seems joyous. But rather, it's the opposite. It actually is grievous. But if you're patient, nevertheless, at some point, it will yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And that, you could put in the word, it will sanctify you unto those that are exercised thereby. So if you're patient with it, you don't become bitter and uh, and resent this chastisement from God. It will actually have a sanctifying process in your life. In Psalm in 1967. I think Cleon read this last Wednesday night. It says like this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. Before I was chastised, I went astray. But now, since I'm afflicted, I keep your word. All right? Number three.
1: Another vital
0: way that God uses to nudge us towards perfection, another spotlight, if you will, is how willing are you and I to receive input from spiritual brothers? And I'm talking about primarily through the expositing of the word in the public gathering of the church. And this is what the Bible says. I'm going to read it to you out of uh, Ephesians 4. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints. Get that? These people are given their gifts so that you and I can be perfected for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now here's gonna here's the final result. Till we all come into the unity of the faith, unto the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Is there any other word we could stick in there? That's sort of like where we started. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, this is saying... Be ye perfect, just like Jesus is perfect. And by the way, here's how you do it. Show up and listen to the sermon in the Sunday school on Sunday morning. Well, I mean, there's other things too, but that's kind of kinda what what is being said here. The people that have the, the gifts of uh, prophecy and evangelism and teaching and pastoring, these are the people that God has gifted to us so that we can be made more perfect. I'm not going to take the time to read it but if you would read in Colossians 1 Paul is making the case here that he has been given the 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 um, the mission of ministry of preaching and he said well I'm just going to read you one a few verses here Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God which is given me for you to fulfill the word of God and then then I'm going to drop down a few verses and it says who do we preach Warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. This is why it's so important for you and I to show up on Sunday morning. This is why we don't neglect this. This is why we are warned not to neglect the assembling of ourselves as the manner of such is, of some is, because we're going to fall out very quickly. And I'll tell you this. My my time my my harks back to the uh, to the COVID days. Yes, we could listen to the YouTube videos, we could do all that, but there was something big time missing in the fact that we were not able together in during those times. And uh, I certainly certainly that thing of of assembling took on a new meaning to me. Now, there's a short little pithy sentence in First Thessalonians five that we don't talk about very much, but I think it fits right in here. Remember that little, those four or five little pithy sentences in First Thessalonians, if I can say it? One of them is, despise not prophesies. What does that mean? Well, you think about this a little bit. Remember King Jehoiakim in, in Jeremiah 36 that despised prophesies? And whenever the book came and Baruch read it to him, he took a, he took his penknife and he cut it out and he tossed it in the fire. Kept doing that until the book was read. That man despised prophesying. And it almost makes chills run up and down my back when I think of the audacity and the arrogance of some man to take the prophet of God and what he wrote. And by the way, he didn't do that on some computer. And just, just throw it in the fire. Just throw it on the fire. We won't even read it one more time. Just get it out of my life. Can it be that the oft-repeated sin of the Old Testament saint, which was to despise the prophets, as in that case, and many others, is still something that we grapple with today? When a man of God, of uh, a man of integrity, presents something to us, and we say, ah, that's his opinion, just despise it. Don't even give it any consideration because I don't like him or I don't like how he said that or I don't believe that's what the word of God says. That's just his idea. And we despise prophesying. Do you suppose we're going to be in any state of sanctification if that's the way we view things? Do you think we will be be nudged any closer to perfection? I say likely not. Okay, a few more here. I am sanctified when I seriously wrestle with the places that God has shown me in my life that need attention. When I'm shown that, am I seriously wrestling with that? And this may call for changes in our lives that seem very radical. And herein is where defeat and discouragement become very real. Um, We might have... Issues that we wish we didn't have. And it's a real battle for us. But are we wrestling with that? And I'll tell you this, friends. Denial and secrecy is not our friend in this process. If we need help, let's get help. That's what our brothers and sisters are here for. The battle can be helped along greatly by our our brothers and sisters. But remember this. The battle is yours to fight. And you have to fight it. Number four. Riding on the heels of this, am I willing to dismantle the structures that support the besetting sins or attitudes that God wants to sanctify in my life? I ran across this little uh, sentence in a book I was reading here recently and it, and it, and I think it's so true. And it went like this. Man is usually through with sin before sin is through with the man. Alright? Like in other words, if we have engaged in some sort of Sinful activity or process or harbored a bitter attitude for ten years. But we, we got to a point where we're, we're tired of it. We're done. Done. We're gonna be done with that sin. Oftentimes, sin isn't done with us yet. And so it's gonna, it's gonna come after us. It's gonna beset us. It's gonna get us from every angle and Satan will not give up easily. But what am I doing to dismantle the structure? To use a very um, overworked one, if a cowboy has a problem with drinking, is it a good idea to tie the horse by the saloon? Even though the horse needs tied up somewhere, can we find a different place? You make the application where it fits you. But if you have problems with pornography on your phone, is it a good idea to continue to carry the phone? It actually could be a very good idea To either wipe that browser off the phone or get a completely different phone or ditch the phone. All right? I mean, this is radical stuff. But what you're doing there is you're dismantling structures that are propping up sin that you so much want to get rid of. And you could take that and you can apply that wherever God wants to apply that in your life. But what are you and I doing to dismantle the structures that allow it to make us easy to sin? Number five. We experience sanctification when we are willing to get up and try after failure, all right? And see, that's, a, that's an important one. Because when the devil is duking it out with us, and he's trying to get us from every angle, and the sin is besetting, it's pretty easy to say, I'll never get past this. I will never win this. Don't give up. Get up and keep going. We do well in this situation when we're discouraged, is to remember who God actually is. Yes, God is a just God. God is a holy God. But God is also a gracious God. He is long-suffering, and it says he's not willing that any should perish. How do we as fathers here on earth treat our children? Well, Would we thrash our children um, without mercy for an infraction, even though they maybe knew that they shouldn't do a thing? Well, we wouldn't do it mercilessly, would we? Now, we might choose to uh, in, in, involve some sort of punishment or reminder so that this doesn't happen again, but are we going to forgive that child? Absolutely we will. And God is so much better and so much more gracious and so much more long-suffering than us as earthly fathers. Again, back to Hebrews, if our earthly fathers chastened us, how much more will our heavenly Father do it in a right way? So get up. Try again. Don't give up. That's part of the sanctification process. All right, we're going to wrap this up. We're going to answer the question we started out with. Can you and I be as perfect as our Father, which is in heaven? Can we? The answer is yes, we can be. When we understand who God is, who we are, and we engage in this exercise that we went through this morning of following in the steps of sanctification, we are perfect people. I'm going to read to you a couple of passages, a couple of verses in closing here. And this is the testimony of Paul. Very familiar verses in Philippians 3. And he says, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. So you got that? He says, I haven't attained, neither am I perfect. All right? But I follow after. If that I might apprehend that which also I am apprehended of Christ. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. Forgetting the things that are behind, reaching forward to the things that are before. He says, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now, the next phrase is the one I want you to get. Because this, this, this never tied in before in my mind. But the very next verse says it like this. Let us therefore, harking back to what he just said, let us therefore... As many as be perfect, be thus minded. When he just got done saying three verses earlier, he said, I'm not perfect. But he said, anybody that's going to be perfect is going to do exactly what I said in these previous three verses. I'm going to forget, and I'm going to press forward. Lastly, I'm going to read these verses without further comment. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's kneel for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and we stand before you, as imperfect and yet perfect. And Lord, I thank you that you have made a way that we can stand as imperfect humans, so prone to failure at times, and we can be perfect in your sight. And Lord, as we have considered this this, uh, spiritual perfection this morning and what it looks like, Lord, I pray that you would work in our lives more toward this perfection that you desire of us that we could be sanctified and cleansed and that we could be washed and made pure in your sight. And Lord, we thank you for that process that you put us through. Lord, I pray for everyone in this audience. I pray you would give them uh, the strength they need to fight the good fight. I pray for those of our number that are not here this morning for whatever reasons. May you bless them and grant them a good day and peace in their lives as well. We ask this in your name. Amen.